On today's episode of the Power Podcast, I'm joined by Brett Kugelmass. He is the Managing Director for the Energy Impact Center. Thanks for joining me, Brett. Can you uh, just tell a little bit about yourself and about the Energy Impact Center and what you guys do? Sure. So uh, myself and my organization are actually relatively new to the energy sector. My background was in robotics. I used to run a drone company out in Silicon Valley for five years um, until it was acquired. And then I moved on to uh, founding this research center specifically to look at the challenges with climate change and decarbonizing our globe. So first, we were primarily just focused on energy. And then after spending a few months of meeting with climate scientists and digging deeper into the topic and uh, really what energy sources could play what roles and what scenarios across the globe, we focused almost exclusively on nuclear energy as the best best path towards deep decarbonization of our planet. Okay. And what, what led you to that? Why do you think it's so much more important than, say, solar or wind power? Well, I think the problem that often goes unacknowledged is that even if you went net zero emissions across the globe in every single sector, agriculture, industry, heat, electricity, transportation, that wouldn't be enough to stop climate change. That would still leave us with the 410 ppm that we have in the air right now, which exerts a three watts per square meter radiative forcing on our planet. So we would just keep getting hotter year over year over year, even if we went net zero across the globe. The real challenge towards solving climate change is to remove all of the existing emissions as well, get us back to the levels that we had in 1750, you know, under 300 ppm. Only then are you going to prevent climate change. Um, And if you look at the problem from that perspective, the only energy source that has a small enough carbon footprint to totally account for its life cycle emissions is nuclear energy. You know, I've seen the the graphs that uh, show the the change in CO two in the atmosphere, and uh, there's one on your website, in fact, that that uh, kind of shows it going up to a potential peak at around 425 ppm, and then actually turning. Now, how are we going to get it to turn? Are you actually using the power from nuclear energy to power some sort of uh, CO two removing devices, or or how does that work? You have to. There is no way to solve climate change without removing CO2 from the air. And if you wanted, and given this, the scale of what we're talking about here, this thousand gigatons of CO2, which by the way, it didn't get up there by accident. I mean, it fueled the majority of the world economy for the last 100 years, just, you know, and that was the result putting it up there. So it is no small feat to remove that much CO2. It's actually even going to take more energy than it took. So that's why you need to look to a different power source. That power source would be nuclear, and then it would power uh, a series of industries and devices that essentially created two things, carbon-neutral fuels and carbon-neutral fuels, so you could immediately become net neutral in terms of current emissions and access the existing fossil fuel infrastructure, and carbon-negative products. So things that sequester carbon for thousands of years and have economic value, like plastics, and only nuclear can power that in a way that can truly be net negative because its inherent carbon footprint is so low. And it seems like if you're going to capture all this CO2, you know, they talk about sequestration and pumping it underground, using it for enhanced oil recovery and those sorts of things. But in the grand scheme of things, you can only use so much of it in those 
avenues or down those avenues. Are you talking about new research and new development that is not even known yet that that you're going to use this stuff for? What what can you do with that much CO2? No way. So hydrocarbons are very useful uh, for other purposes other than just burning, right? So hydrocarbons are a stable form of carbon that can be sequestered for thousands of years when they're used in plastics. And we've known how to make plastics for a while. And pulling CO2 from the air isn't uh, that challenging. We've known how to do that since the early 1900s. The challenge is doing it in an energy efficient way, right? You wouldn't burn fossil fuels just to then pull CO2 from the air. So you need that alternate energy source. And that alternate energy source is nuclear energy. And do you see a different type of uh, power plant that will be using nuclear fuel or more the conventional style that we have out there today, the pressurized water reactors, boiling water reactors, that type of technology? What do you see in the future? Well, I've seen some new types of nuclear technologies coming down the pipeline that look fascinating and are interesting and will be technological marvels. But there's nothing wrong with the power plants that we built in the 70s, the light water reactors, the pressure water reactor variant, the boiling water reactor variant. These are amazing, amazing power plants as well. And we know how to build them. And I think these will be the first that we can really uh, scale and get to market in a next new wave of nuclear development, which I anticipate is coming shortly. Now, along the same lines, there are many challenges with building nuclear power plants. We know about the Vogel plant, which is behind schedule, over budget. There's plants over in uh, France and and in Finland that are also way behind schedule and over budget. How can we do it in an economical way that, that speeds up the process and makes this faster? So that is the problem to solve. And that's what my research organization focuses on. So the Energy Impact Center, uh, we're a non-for-profit research institute that essentially focuses on catalyzing innovation in nuclear space to address that one issue. The one issue is how do we build them cheap and fast, and how do we create an ecosystem of stakeholders, whether they be construction companies, customers, uh, utilities, governments, whoever it is, that is focused on that one thing. Not build them safer, build them fast and cheap. What companies are working with you to help make that a reality? Can you name any of them? Sure. I mean, well, we collaborate with uh, pretty much every organization that you've heard of in the nuclear sector and many beyond as well, too. And so we're working with uh, universities. We've got a partnership with the University of Michigan coming up. We've worked with the Department of Energy here. We work with uh, utilities abroad. We work with think tanks. Um, So through the uh, Titans of Nuclear podcast, which is one of the advocacy products that the Energy Impact Center produces. We've developed relationships throughout the nuclear sector, throughout the energy sector, and throughout the international markets. We see a lot of power plants being built in China, and of course, Korea is a a developer, and they've got their units being built in the UAE, for one example. Do you think that those uh, units will eventually make their way into the American market? Listen, Energy has defined geopolitics uh, forever. And I don't know who's going to be selling to who specifically, but whoever has the cheapest energy product will be selling it globally around the world. And with it will come great geopolitical influence too. I hope that's us. I hope it's the United States of America 
that is selling nuclear products around the world instead of us, which unfortunately might happen if we don't get our act together buying nuclear power plants from China. What do you think can make the change? Does it have to be done in Washington? Do they need uh, support for these types of initiatives? Or is there something that people can do on a grassroots level? I don't think we need government support to catalyze tremendous change in the sector, at least not financial government support. I think financial government support definitely helps with early stage research, but I do not think it is necessary for business to change the way that it has been designing nuclear power plants uh, to focus specifically on this cost and time to market issue. I'd like to see existing companies just change the way that they're doing things, focus on how do we design a plant specifically to be built quickly, to borrow capital for shorter periods of time, to have to borrow less capital in the first place. That's never been the primary design criteria, and it needs to be. Do you think small modular reactors have an impact on how this goes forward? Definitely. I mean, the concept itself of small modular reactor is perfect. The question is still execution. Are the small modular reactor companies that are out there today going to execute on this vision? But the idea of building something uh, smaller, faster, factory built, this has worked in other industries before, and it can work in nuclear too. We just need enough companies attempting to execute on this. So at least a few of them emerge victorious. Do you see any future for, for fusion? I mean, we've written about fusion in our magazine before, and it, and it seems like it's way out into the future. I mean, the, the impact may not be seen in our lifetime. What do you think? Well, if you, fusion is interesting, but I'm not sure what problem you're trying to solve with fusion. People, because it doesn't really exist yet, put all their fantasies in fusion, that it's going to be cheaper than fission that uh, the fuel is more abundant than fuel for fission, that it doesn't have radiation. And these are all fantasies. It, it's just not true. Uh, fusion by nature will be more complicated than fission. Still worth pursuing, but it's probably going to be more expensive than a fission plant. So we have to keep that in mind before we place all of our hopes on some fantasy that we really haven't worked out the construction economics for. And you, you mentioned fuel. When you look at uh, uranium and the amount and quantity that would be needed for the number of plants that I assume you envision, is there enough fuel to power all of these plants? And would we run into any problems as we move forward in that respect? At current energy consumption levels for the entire planet, there would be enough nuclear fuel in the crust of the Earth to power the Earth for 100 billion years. You heard me correctly, 100 billion years. The question is, what is the extraction cost to get that out of the earth? Now, what's really fascinating about uranium is that it's dissolved in seawater, which means it's in a permanent state of leaching uranium from the entire crust of the earth. So no matter how much uranium you pull from the seawater, you won't diminish its percentage ratio within the seawater. And we can already extract uranium from seawater at something between $200 and $400 a kilogram. So that is the upper limit on your cost for 100 billion years worth of energy for the entire globe at current consumption levels. So, yeah, we've got enough fuel. 
I've seen or heard of technologies that will allow us to reuse some of the fuel that has been previously spent in in reactors. Do you think that's got any uh, potential there? Do you think we can make that happen too? Only, I think we should do it if it is the cheaper option. If mining new uranium is a cheaper option, we should do that. A lot of people are under the assumption that spent nuclear fuel poses some hazard to human health. Let me be very clear. No one has ever been hurt by spent nuclear fuel in any way. So this uh, concept of it being this hazardous substance that needs to be buried for millions of years is just some theoretical notion that we've concocted. The table in your living room is more dangerous than nuclear fuel. A campfire is certainly more dangerous than nuclear fuel. Teddy bears and soft blankets kill a thousand infants in the U.S. a year. Teddy bears are more dangerous than spent nuclear fuel. A lot of people will ask, where can we store all of the spent nuclear fuel? You know, we've had a, a lot of trouble getting facilities built that, that could potentially store spent nuclear fuel. What, what do you think needs to be done in that respect? We can do whatever we do with normal waste. Like I said, it doesn't pose any more of a hazard, especially once it's diluted than any other form of waste that we produce in quantities a million fold. What do we do with all the tennis shoes that we throw out? We put it in a landfill, and sometimes that landfill goes to making extremely economically productive areas. You know, the Boston Harbor was built on a landfill. San Francisco was built on a landfill. Singapore was built on a landfill. We have so little nuclear waste compared to every other type of waste we produce. It is a negligible concern. A lot of people also have the not-in-my-backyard mentality. Where can all of these nuclear plants be built, and, and is it even possible in the numbers that you're projecting in order to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, can we get these permitted and licensed and built in different communities? Well, according to the vision that I've laid out, where we're actually producing carbon-neutral fuels, so we're pulling CO2 from the air, turning it into hydrocarbons like gasoline or like methane, and then shipping that around the world, these nuclear plants can be located anywhere. You could build 10,000 gigawatts of nuclear plants on Greenland and make Greenland the synthetic Saudi Arabia of the world, shipping carbon-neutral hydrocarbons everywhere. And that would completely eliminate the Earth's new emissions carbon footprint overnight if we did that, and also eliminate any of these kind of not-in-my-backyard or licensing concerns. Put them all on an island somewhere. I don't care. Is there anything that I've missed? I think the most important part that I want to reiterate is for people to, when they think about climate change, ask what problem they're trying to solve and ask what the outcome will be if you got everything you wanted. If you got 100% of the grid renewables, if that's what you want, what does that actually do to climate change? Does that solve the problem of the carbon that we already have in the air that's going to continue to bake the planet year over year? It would create a negligible difference. So, that's the note that I'll just leave your audience on. Always ask, you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve and what's the outcome if you get everything you say you want? Well, thanks a lot for your time, Brett. I appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast and we'll see what happens with nuclear as we go forward. Thank you, Aaron. It's been fun. Talk to you later.